There's some bird song somewhere. Is that... <laughs> Hi, everybody. This is Marlene with Miami Ghost Chronicle Stories of the Supernatural. How are you all doing today? And today I am very excited to have an author of many, many books in the paranormal. He's from the UK. His name is Mr. Paul Adams. And he, um, he has so many interesting books. I can't wait to get into that with him. But anyway, uh, he, and this is a very good description. He's an established author. He hasn't written one book or two books. He's written several books. And um, uh, the titles of some of them are Haunted St. Albums, The Haunted Counties, and The Enigma of Rosalie. And um, as a matter of fact, right before we started rolling, I was asking about it because the case of Rosalie uh, is a spirit child and uh, Harry Price which was a paranormal investigator from the 1930s and around that time period, 1920s. This was one of his most controversial investigations and uh, it's remained a mystery for 80 years. Uh, he also has other current uh, writing projects which include a study of horror and the supernatural in Western music, which I got to talk to him, Paul, about that, called Music Macabre, a biography of the late Peter Underwood and, uh, and a horror fiction novel titled The architecture of evil so it is fantastic to have you here today paul how are you doing i'm very well thank you very much for having me on the program it's just nice to be here no thank you my pleasure um i'm gonna ask you paul what i ask most of my guests which is obviously you've written books but how did you get involved in the paranormal did you have a childhood experience was it something that happened as an adult well, most people do have this. They have a sort of a, an experience which uh, which they can't explain, and that sort of gets them on the on the sort of road to investigating the paranormal. With me, I mean, it sounds very corny. It wasn't like that. It was literally through reading ghost stories as a okay. as a child. You know, there was a a, a great series of, in England, uh, the Armada Book of Ghosts, edited by a lady called Mary Danby, and they were just the sort of little spooky stories that uh, that sort of intrigued my got my imagination going. So. So I read sort of fiction and then uh, later on, about sort of about 1977, I came across a, a couple of books by non-fiction titles by Dan Farson and they were about um, real life cases like Borley Rectory and, okay. and places like that. And then I went on holiday with my parents down to a place called Samford Orcus, which is a very small village in Sherbourne in Dorset in the southwest of England. And there, there's a manor house there, which had, at that time, it had the reputation of being the most haunted house in England. And we were um, uh, shown round by the tenant, who was a chap called Colonel Claridge. And he and his wife claimed that they had all sorts of paranormal experiences, seen apparitions and, okay. uh, and heard all sorts of things, going back to when they moved in. I think they moved in there in about the mid-1960s. So I went down to this place, and it was literally like something out of a, a Hammer Horror film set. It literally had, like, suits of armour and, and all this sort of stuff. And I walked around, I walked around with my parents, and Claridge was there, and he... He said, oh, well, we see this person, this figure here and this figure there. Uh, and that really got me interested in it. And that really got me got me interested in, in real life, you know, hauntings and things like that. That, that you know, that these, the ghost stories that I read as a child, there were actually real things going on. So, and, that, and it sort of went from there, you know. Right, exactly. And, and the reason why I ask you this is because sometimes I've run into people, especially as children, where that experience does one of two things it interests them more in the paranormal or they do the exact opposite they run away from it and they want nothing they have such a bad scare yeah. uh, that they want ha to have nothing whatsoever to do with a paranormal and i i 
I mean, I kind of did the same thing uh, when I was growing up. You know, I back then it was the, as far as nonfiction was Hans Holzer and he had a series of books, you know, that he would go to all these different houses and he was bring over mediums like Sybil Leek and uh, usually Trixie Allingham, wasn't it? Trixie Allingham was another one he you yeah, worked with. He yeah, he had like different uh, mediums that he would bring over and that was his way of communicating. Mm. With the spirits, because back then, you know, there's not the host of equipments or anything. He would use these mediums to to basically talk to the ghost and find out who it is. Mm. And then, of course, you know, it, in, in, to, in through the years, it became a little bit more a little bit more mainstream. And then you saw more mm -hmm. people getting into mm. it um, as far as the nonfiction, because there's always been uh, ghost mm. stories. As a matter of fact, the fictional type have always been popular for many, Definitely. many, many years. Um mm. And I myself, I, I, I have huge books of Victorian ghost stories around, you know, those eight, because they're so fantastic. The best ghost stories. The Victorians wrote the best ghost oh, stories. Oh, yes, yes. You know, and of course, everybody and everybody's name was an initial Mrs. S, Mr. R. Nobody had a full name because even back then, you know, discretion was very important. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah, I have had a couple, I mean, I have had a couple of odd experiences. Uh, in later life, you know, uh, around about 1992, I'm, I bought my first house, which was a really old cottage in uh, Mickleham in Surrey, which is about 20 miles south of London. And there, um, before I moved in, there was a, an elderly lady who'd lived there all her life, and she had moved out because she she couldn't live on her own anymore. And um, when she lived there, the house had no electricity, so it was wow. all cat candles and you know oil lamps and things like that and i moved in and i was there about a week and uh by that time it had been updated uh, and there was power and things and one evening I, w I went down into the cellar it had a basement area which was the actually the largest room in the house and i went down the stairs and i came through this it was like walking through a, a smell of candle grease as if somebody had just had, had candles lit okay. and a, a, and it was this smell of candle wax. Uh, and I hadn't had anything like that on at all. And um, it struck me as really strange. And it was just at this one spot on the stairs. And it was there. And then it sort of went. And I mentioned it to the neighbor next door. And she said, oh, that sounds like Mary Saunders. Because she used to have, like, candles and things, you know. And I never, ever smelt it again. Wow. And the last day, I, I, I lived there six years. And in that time, I got married. And I had, we had our first child and we were expecting another child and we had to move because the house was too small uh, and the last day that I was there all the furniture had been moved out and everything and I was there just locking up and I walked down and exactly the same spot I smelt it again this smell of candle grease you Isn't know that unusual? it was almost like hello and goodbye right exactly that's what I was about to comment as, as yeah. soon as you get there and when you're ready it's and yeah. I always wanted, I was going to say, well, maybe it's a residual, but then you think of that timing and it makes you think there's a little bit of intelligence behind it. Yeah, yeah. yeah because yeah. it was when you moved in and when you were leaving, it wasn't like you could say, well, you know what, I, every time I would go down those stairs at a certain time or, you know, I, I came across that smell and I would say, well, maybe it's a residual thing. But yeah, it makes you think there was like a, a goodbye, yeah. hello, Long goodbye. Thing. Another, another thing that was one uh this was quite recent this was about three years ago we went to a place called mount fitchett 
castle near Stansted Airport, um, which again is about 25 miles sort of um, northwest of London, sorry, northeast of London. And um, there, that's a Norman castle, uh, you know, dating back to like the, you know, the 11th, the sort of 11th century. Uh, And they'd rebuilt some some of they sort of re, tried to recreate parts of the old buildings with, with these modern things they were built in an old style you know and in one of those buildings i was with three of my children and we all felt really weird at a one point where you went through a doorway into from a one big room into another room and i felt really and i don't normally pick up on things like this at all you know and i felt i felt like i was on a ship as if it was i was felt really oh. unsteady you know and my one of my other children felt really sick. Another one felt she was being pushed in the back, uh, and it was really odd. And it was just at this this one spot when you went through this door, and there were other people there. And and uh, I asked them. I said, "Do you feel anything weird at this spot?" And they looked at me as if I was like mad, you know. And uh-huh. So I, when we went, when we left. I mentioned it to the people in the, you know, the people who worked there and they said, oh, yeah. And they they went and got this photograph and they had one of these paranormal groups had been there about 18 months before. Uh And they set up a camera and taken a photograph of this really odd, what looked like a figure. And it was in exactly the spot where where we went through the doorway. So that was quite that was quite interesting. Isn't that, you know, (laughs) and that's the thing where. Once somebody introduces a connection, because you have nothing whatsoever to do with a group that was there 18 months before, what yeah, are the chances that, so, that in yeah. that same exact spot, there's going to be some type of anomaly, whether um, you, it was photographed or in this case that you felt it? It's like, okay. Yeah, yeah it was, well, and it was all all of us, all four of us. Right, all, and all of you felt it. All felt really odd at this point. And then, you know, and then we walked through and, and it was gone. So it was really, really odd, you know. They're the sort of odd things that have happened, have happened to me, you know. So it's uh, yeah, so it's and, and, and one time I was up, um, I had gone to a meeting up in Vermont, in the mountains of Vermont, and we were staying at this old like a house that they had converted into like a kind of a, like a small inn. It was out in the middle of nowhere, and we were all they had made like a big bonfire out in the back of the property, and we were all sitting there talking, and finally I couldn't take it, and I turned around to one of the ladies that I knew, and I said. I don't know why, but I keep feeling somebody staring at us or at me. I want to say from the top window, like on the second floor of the inn. And I can't get. And it, around that time, mm. one of the owners comes down and goes, oh, yeah, that's the guy, the farmer, the spirit of the farmer that used to live out here. And he came and he pulled out this book of people throughout the years, which had talked about exactly what I felt. It was like, really? Yeah. Mm. Uh, where that had some time. And at that second story window that looked out towards the back of the property and i was like wow okay because i was like oh okay uh, maybe i got jet lag or something but uh <laughs> i know what you mean when it comes off that it's like okay it's not my imagination uh mm. it's not me being paranoid and like you said you had all of your your same yeah, family members a, have the same experience yeah, collective experience which makes it more evidential doesn't it i think that yeah. is so interesting and let me um as far as this this book the and i had mentioned to you the enigma of rosalie yes what what is that about what i mean this apparently he was involved with it back in the 1930s that's and, right yeah harry harry price was a sort of 
uh, in the 20s and 30s, he was probably the sort of, you know, the go-to man for, uh, certainly in with, the, with the general public, was the sort of main man for, for uh, to do with paranormal phenomena. He was um, uh, well known uh, in the, in, with the newspapers, and if ever there was a, right, a case, exactly. case haunting or anything like that, the newspapers would always go to Harry Price. He was very good uh, at uh, with publicity and promoting himself. Um, he was a sort of a controversial figure, but he was very passionate about the subject. And this is a time when the sort of paranormal scene was very different from how it is today. In those years, up until up until I'd say probably just after the probably the end of the Second World War, everybody was in, investigating spiritualism, spiritualism. Mm-hmm. And, Seances and, and things like that. That was where um, organised psychical research was mainly involved. I mean, it sort of changed after the after the, the Second World War. Sort of divided. I mean, the mediumship sort of fell off. Right. People started doing more statistical stuff. You know, Ryan uh, over at Duke University, over in, on your side of the wall, see. Uh, and then, so you had the statistical stuff and the um, and more the spontaneous things. You know, like the more sort of you know ghost hunting that we would we would we would look at it now. But in the 30s and the 20s, people were interested in seances and, and trying to yes. you know uh, um, investigate mediums, especially physical mediums who said they could materialize spirits and things like this. Mm-hmm. And this is where the sort of Rosalie case um, uh, comes from. It, it, uh, it dates from 1937, um, although Harry Price didn't really make it public until about 18 months later. Okay. Uh, and he he was um he had revived a ghost club which is an old um paranormal society probably the oldest paranormal society in england it dates from about the 1850s uh, but it's had various incarnations over the years price revived it in the 30s as a sort of a dining club where you went and had a nice meal in an expensive restaurant in london and uh, and mm-hmm. and you had lectures on ghosts and things like this and there he 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 he, he said that he had about 18 months before, uh, the end of December 1937, he'd been contacted by a lady who said that uh, she'd heard him on a, a radio broadcast uh, the previous month, uh, which was incidentally about Borley Rectory, but it, it wasn't actually n- named He was because he was still investigating then and it was, it was still a private investigation. Um, but in the broadcast, he'd, he'd, made, he'd, he'd said a phrase, he said, at this house, I can guarantee you a ghost and the lady on the phone price up said I, c- I can guarantee you a ghost but it's one much more tangible nature we hold a seance meeting every week at my home where this the um the the figure of a of a six-year-old girl that he called rosalie always materialized okay. and she was inviting harry price to come for a one-off um experience to to meet uh, to to experience the alleged materialization of rosalie so this is what he said had, had taken place uh and this was um on the 15th of december 1937 okay. and subsequently when he published uh, details of the of the case he described what had happened to him but he never because he said it was a, a, a it was an agreement with the family that they didn't want any publicity he never ever said who the people were, or where okay. he went, and where the house was. He was somewhere in London, 
Um, and so it always remained a sort of a mystery because he describes in his book, uh, a book called 50 Years of Psychical Research, which came out in 1939, he describes going to the house on a, on a, an eve, a Wednesday evening in December and uh, meeting the family, meeting the mother of Rosalie, who was a, a French lady who had married, um, married an English, uh, uh, Englishman who had okay. been killed killed in the first world war they okay. had a child called rosalie who had died in 1921 of diphtheria and she was a friend of the family he the family he calls them mr and mrs x mr okay. and mrs x and their daughter there was a daughter miss x uh mm -hmm. teenage, teenage daughter uh, and he calls the, the mother of rosalie madam z so she's always been known as madam z but he met the family uh, and then they they retired to a room in this in the house where price was able to and this is this is the the important thing with uh, with uh, with the rover's case is that price who was a uh, uh, i'd say he was probably one of the most experienced investigators of science uh -huh. phenomena in england at that time and he had uh, he knew uh, tricks of, you know, how he, if he was being fooled. Um, right. So he was able to search the sitters. He was able to search the room. This is what he says. And he sealed the door. He sealed the windows. And he arranged the sitters in a circle in the room. Uh, there was actually a dog in the room, actually. There was a dog which was, uh, uh, was in the room as well, but that wasn't disturbed. It was sitting by the fire. And he said that during the course of the seance, which was in blackout conditions, which lasted about two hours, uh, for about 20 minutes of that, towards the end, he experienced the materialization of Rosalie. He, in the darkness, he felt uh, uh, something next to him. He was able to reach out and touch what he describes as a naked figure in the darkness uh, was able to feel it he feel its heartbeat and with a with a, a luminous plaque a uh, piece of cardboard with a luminous paint on it which had been placed down on the floor he was able to examine the figure and he described seeing a, a figure of a, of a child um, which uh, was a blonde child um, completely nude um, and he was he, he was allowed to speak to it and the child didn't. He asked several questions uh -huh. uh, uh, in quite an emotional atmosphere. The, the ladies in the room were, were very, Madam Z was very emotional at seeing her child again. And uh, Price even himself says that he was affected emotionally by, the, by this, this experience. Uh, Rosalie never spoke, only to, uh, on an impromptu, when Price asked her, did, that she, did she love her mother? Um, wow. the, the, she said, just said yes. And then, then the seance was brought to an end. The lights were extinguished, and about 15 minutes later, the, the room lights were put up, and Rosalie had gone completely. And Price was allowed to search the room. He searched the city; all his seals were unbroken, and uh, it left him um, with this uh, this incredible experience. And and it, for someone who was very uh, skeptical uh, of, uh, I mean, he he did when he did meet, did encounter genuine phenomena. He did champion it, okay. uh, but he was very um, skeptical towards spiritualism. I mean, he uh, and off he described um, spiritualism as the as, as I think something like the uh, uh, the something like the embarrassment of the thinking man. It was it was a real. It was, it was he, he was very blasé towards it, but. This experience really uh, shook him, and uh, the next day, 
he was at his office in London. He was a sort of a part-time researcher. He he worked. Uh, he had a full-time job. Well, a, a job in, in a paper company. Okay. And he was able, so he was able to juggle this quite well with with cycle research. And he had his own office in London. And uh, several people who saw him that day on the day after the séance was realised that he was very very. Uh, upset by this it had really sort of shaken him you know okay uh, so he wrote this account uh, and, and it was published in 1939 and up until sort of my book coming out last year it has sort of remained very much a, a mystery um because right. price price never ever um he never had another sitting he, he claimed that he tried to have other sittings with them but Ma Madame Z was always frightened that Rosalie might be scared away and that she would not see her again. And uh, then the war came, and apparently, so Price said, uh, much, much later, he wrote a, a short article in a magazine in 1946 where he says that what happened was the uh, he, he kept in touch with the family. They were sort of promising maybe that there might be another sitting that he could bring uh, colleagues and, and hopefully maybe even do it in his own laboratory. Um, but then the war came. Madame Z uh, went to France, was caught up in the invasion of France and was sort of nef nothing was ever heard of her again. So right. it sort of it was a sort of an unsatisfactory ending to it. Right. And then. After Price died in 1948, and uh, well, after his death, uh, some cases were looked on again by, and they were sort of attacked. Uh, certainly, the Borley Rectory, which was his most famous investigation, right? And which is what I said with him. I had never heard of this case. The one I was always, you always hear about is Borley Rectory. Yeah, Borley Rectory is the most famous one. But he, exactly he, after, after he died, it was reinvestigated uh, by um, members of the Society for Cycle Research, and mm -hmm. they they felt that Price had. Uh, well, their their report, which was published in 1956, was very very critical about Price and yes. his 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 posthumous reputation at that time really nosedived, you know. And then a couple of years later, the same people looked at Rosalie and also felt that uh, basically that he had made the whole thing up, that he had used it. It was made up. It was a made up story in order to um, sell this book, in order to give a sensational chapter that the newspapers would latch on in reviews and that okay. there was no, no substance to it so for you know for, for a long time rosalie case was um was sort of just really it, it was just rubbished and then in the 60s there was a 1960s there was a sort of resurgence of interest in it a, a, a man called david cohen from manchester in england became very interested in uh, and lots of things sort of happened in the 60s, sort of to do with Rosalie. Uh, Cohen became very interested in it, uh, and he was uh, upset at the way that Price's reputation had been sort of attacked in the, in the 60s. There was a sort of a period in the 60s of almost fashionable uh, denigration of some of the earlier figures in cycle okay. research. Critical books were published uh, about not only Harry Price, but um, Frederick Myers, who was one of the founders of, this, of the Society for Cycle Research, Edmund Gurney was another founder of the SPR, and that there was some critical book, critical accounts published about him. So Cohen got very upset about this, so he decided to champion Price and see if he could um, 
reinvestigate Rosalie okay. um, and tried to do this and he, he didn't really succeed but what he did do was he published a self-published a book uh, called Price and His Spirit Child Rosalie which came out in 1965 and in it he um, he, he, he gave it offered a reward of 25 pounds which was in those days was quite a large amount of money for any information uh, sort of um, that anybody might have that might lead to the identity to, to f the finding of the identifying of the house or the people involved okay. you know so it sort of that happened then Cohen unfortunately was very ill and he, he passed away the, the following year um, around about the same sort of time that Cohen was involved other people were uh, two people from the Society for Psychical Research Mary Rose Barrington and uh, Richard Medhurst they became interested in it and they found in Harry Price's papers which were bequeathed to the University of London they found uh, a carbon copy of a letter which uh, showed that Price had actually gone to a seance when he said it was it was the letter okay. written to Adam Z so written to Mrs X accepting the invitation and although the, oh. the so there was an actual physical piece of evidence mm -hmm. letter there was no address on the letter oh, but wow. there was a name there was a name called Mrs Mortimer and okay. so that sort of gave them a bit of a clue. So what the people did was Harry Price, in his account, he had described the house very accurately from the outside. He said, I want my readers to imagine what it was like, you know, when I... Because Harry Price was very good at, you know, self-promotion. He was, the, he was the, the top man and he liked his readers to know that he was, you know, he was in control and, and noticing everything. So he really described the book in, described the house, I beg pardon, in, in great detail. There were 12 stone steps up to the front door. Oh my, and, that much detail, huh? Okay. Yeah, yeah. and you know, double fronted house with so many windows on the front elevation and, and this sort of thing. So what the people did in the 60s, Barrington and, and uh, Medhurst, they copied out all of, the, all of the Mortimers that were in the public phone book. Okay. In 1937, and then they went round and found all the house. Well, whichever the house, some of the houses were were gone because they had been bombed and that sort of thing during the war. But they went round, and they tried to find a house which matched, uh, which matched the, the description of the house that Harry Price had given. Okay. But they were unsuccessful. They couldn't find one. The only one. Um, the only one which seemed similar was a house in the suburb of South London suburb of uh, Broccoli. Uh, and it was a double-fronted house. There was a Mortimer family living there. But okay. it, there, were, there were differences, uh, and they, they had to discount it. And funnily enough, it's one of these sort of... Uh, it seemed to be a strange coincidence that Harry Price knew Broccoli very well because he used to live there when he was a young man. So it seemed rather too much of a coincidence that the broccoli that it was that was that place. So again, the, the, the investigation sort of stalled. People were there's been a little bit of an advance. It looked like there there was a name, but there was nobody. They couldn't find it. And then a strange thing happened uh, in April 1966, uh, about six months before David Cohen passed away. He received an anonymous letter. Uh, postmarked uh, from London. Um, it was anonymous, but the writer signed herself Rosalie. It was handwritten, oh. and the writer, the writer claimed that she was actually 
um, the daughter of uh, Miss X. She was actually the daughter of the family, and and had been at the at the séance in nineteen thirty six. And she confessed that the séance had been a, a fake. Oh. And, yeah, she confessed that it was a fake, and the reason why it was a fake was that uh, her parents, her father, who was worked um, on the stock exchange in London, had had messed up, and he'd he had to uh, he'd lost a lot of money, and in order to sort of bail himself out, he knew that a friend of his, uh, this was Madame Z, uh, was a quite a wealthy woman. He he made a pretense of. Um, investing money for her uh, in some sort of non-existent business deal. He'd basically taken her money and, and, and sort of um, paid off his debts, but now he was le- left with owing Madam Z. So in, order oh. to buy, so in order to buy himself some time, he knew that she was very uh, uh, attached to the, the memory of her daughter who had passed away. Oh, so I see. She, they, they decided to fake these seances and, and fake uh, uh, Rosalie to keep Madame Z sweet and happy while he earned enough money to pay her off. So it was a scam. This is what the anonymous Oh, wow. So the actual lady with the dead daughter did exist. It was, oh. Well, that's, you see, that. so this letter came in. David Cohen was convinced it was real. He was up. He thought, "Well, okay, I was hoping that uh, that it was there was some sort of genuine phenomena there," but um, he felt it was a it was a, a genuine letter. But a lot of other people at the time felt that the, the actual Rosalie letter, as as I call it, was itself a hoax. Felt that somebody was having was pulling David Cohen's leg, uh, and that they'd gone through uh, Price's account, they'd written this letter, and that itself was a joke. You see, mm-hmm. so. It was sort of again. There was a, an there was an advance, but there wasn't an advance, you know. Yes. Uh, so that was really how uh, the Rosalie case was left in the mid sort of sixties, mid seventies. Uh, there was a little bit more interest in it. People uh, tried to um, uh, see if they could do anything with it. They had some mediums came and tried to psychometrize the the letters, you know, the Mortimer letter and the Rosalie letter to see if they could get any information, but nothing really, really happened. And the case has sort of been in history uh, until, uh, you know, and since those times, mm-hmm. you know. Right. Uh, and I became very interested. I was interested in Borley Rectory from a long time ago, you know, and uh, and I'd done a book on, on Borley Rectory, um, which came out in 2009, and so after that, I I decided to. I thought I was have a go at Rosalie, you know, and I wanted okay. to. I wanted to try and just do a history of the case, and just okay. all, all these events that I've been talking about. They they have been published in different books and different magazines over a long period. So I thought, okay, I'll do a history, and I'll bring all of it together and just publish this, write this book. And there was a sort of. Um, maybe a little hope in the back of my mind that I might be able to make some sort of inroad into it, you know, but it was such a long time ago and, you know, and all of the people involved would be I was going to say, they've all passed away, right? All passed away. So, so I started doing it and I started writing up the case and I went to, uh, I mean, we are very, very fortunate over here that Harry Price left all of his papers and his books and his letters and correspondence in a vast archive, which is held 
Library. And it is one of the most important collections of historical psychical research papers here in the UK. Not only people like me go and look, look through its stuff, but it's, uh, you know, it's a sort of a real history for that period, you know. So it's, it's, a very, okay. it's a very important collection. So I went up there and started looking through the Price's letters and, and did some work on it. And um, I... But I got to a point, I got to a, I, I was managed to sort of write a sort of a history of it. But as I became, I got a, a, reached a barrier, you know, I couldn't go any further because I didn't, there were in little indicators amongst some of the letters that, um, that gave sort of more clues that maybe broccoli where it may have been um, there, but there was nothing definite. There was nothing definite there at all. And this, I mean, this was some time ago. This was back back about 2010 when I was doing this. And so, I sort of put the put the the case on the back burner, and I wrote other books. And and but mm-hmm. always it was always in the back of my mind that Rosalie might be, you know. So uh, about a couple of years ago, I decided that right, okay, I'm going to finish this book. I'm going to finish the history of it. Mm-hmm. And, and it, unfortunately, it's going to be left as a, a you know open. Um, but in that time, uh, a lot of online, you know, online res- uh, records have become okay. available. You know, like there's there, there's some websites over here, um, Find My Past and Ancestry, where mm-hmm. there are a lot, you know, genealogical data and right. things on there, which you know makes it a lot easier for people to uh, research things. And um, one of these websites had had put on uh, some details. Of a, there was a census which was taken in 1939 in this okay. country, uh, which was on the outbreak of war in September 39. They did a snapshot census um, to issue people with identity cards at the beginning of the beginning of the war, and it's not a finite um, uh, collection because people who are still alive aren't in it, and the records, if anybody, uh, with it, people who have died within the past 25 years, their records are closed. But it's it's still a good you know yes, it's a good, good snapshot. So what I did was I um, I started to go through. I made a list of all the Mortimers in London uh, in uh, that were in the 1939 census, and uh, there were nearly 500 people. Oh, <laughs> so I got all the all the people, and I went through all of their addresses. And I made a big list. It took months. I can so imagine. A list of all these people. And then I started looking uh, at uh, really, I was very, I was very sort of unhappy with, with the description that Price had given of this house. It seemed too contrived. It seemed made up to me. Mm-hmm. And it was sort of proved because I'd found some letters in his archive where he said that the report that he published in his book was verbatim and uncorrected. He'd begun it on the night of the seance in bed at his London club and he'd finished it the following day and it was it had not been edited. But I found that it had been edited. Okay. He had changed some details, like the 12 stone steps that I mentioned going up to the front door. In that, he seems to have added that in because in the original version, it just says a flight of stone steps. Do you think he so, did that to mislead in case anybody... I think so. Okay. Yes, I think, I think he. I think he. I think he. He. He changed things because he didn't want the. It. You know. He felt. He felt it was too exact. Right. So, okay. But I thought to myself, well, maybe some aspects of this house are 
he it, some of it's right and some of it's wrong because he described the house as being on a corner of a main road and a side road with what we call an area at the front in london in london houses often have a, a, a basement story which you can see the front windows you can see from the pavement and so he describes it so i went through and i and I went through and I looked at every single, where possible, I looked at every single house. And obviously I had the advantage that I could go on Google Street View and look it's... at the hell of the houses. So I didn't have to actually physically go there like okay. the other people did in the 1960s. And I went there and I looked at these houses. And I was inter making a list of all the people who lived, all these Mortimers. And I was more interested in the, the, the type of household because the price describes it as them being quite affluent people. Um, they had live-in servants. There was a cook there. There was okay. a maid, maid who answered the door. So they were, they were um, quite a, a specific type of people. And right. doing this, it was possible to eliminate the household that had been examined in the 60s, the house in Broccoli that the other investigators had thought. I found that that house was a house in multiple occupation. There were several families living in this one house. So okay. that really ruled that out. And working my way through this list of people, I eventually came and I found a, a family that that seemed to sort of fit the bill. Okay. Uh, and that was a house in Cadogan Square in Kensington in London. There was a Mortimer family living there. And they seemed very much, they seemed to sort of stand out as a, a they, they, the family fitted this. This guy worked in the city, as did mr x in the story and um so they were my front runners and they seemed to be it seemed that they might be the people okay uh, but there was i was able to um we mentioned that uh, peter underwood who was a, a friend of mine and who was a, a one of one of our great um uh, sadly peter uh, passed away in 2014 but he was one of our big uh, writers on on the paranormal in the in the 70s and 80s uh, and um he bequeathed to me a lot of his papers and letters uh, after before he died he gave them to me and he had in there was a photograph of one page of the of the anonymous letter that was okay. written to David and Cohen. The original has been lost, unfortunately, but there's a photograph of one page, handwritten. So what I did was I, I got hold of the will of the daughter of the house uh, of the Mortimers that I'd found in Kensington and had a graphologist do a handwriting analysis. I, of, oh, wow. Writing on the will with the writing on the page of the Rosalie letter, and they matched. So wow. what a detective you are! <laughs> oh <my laughs> so God. it was quite a moment where you know to think that there was you know that the, the, the Harry Price had been sort of vindicated because he did go to this place, and now okay. we had a we had an actual a place. Okay, and the story is quite it's quite complicated. The um, these were the people involved and and now that the rosalie letter had been proved to be real you could see that that the reasons were genuine that they, it was actually a a, 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 a case of, of fraud you know mm -hmm. that the people but um 
it was it was uh, in, in interesting to to do you know and, and oh so absolutely because it's always of course he was attacked posthumously he couldn't defend himself and yeah you know, of course it's very easy to attack somebody's credibility when they're not there to challenge you or that's right and and you i believe in uh the summary of the work it was like did he know this was a fraud or, you know, or did he allow himself to be? I think, he, yeah, I think he, I think initially he was, he believed that he might have experienced genuine phenomena. Okay. Um, because what happened in the Rosalie letter, this was, this is the strange thing about the Rosalie letter. The lady who wrote the anonymous letter, who I now know was a lady called Joan, um, Joan Mortimer. She claimed that she had, fooled harry price by in the dark phase of the seance she'd taken all her clothes off and pretended to be the ghost of rosalie by standing in the nude okay. and then and then redressed herself uh in the um uh, you know in the other part of the dark phase so that was how she said that she had cheated harry price but i found that there was there was a problem with that because she was actually she wasn't and price described her as being about 15 years about 17 right. years that's she quite was a difference in age well she was actually 30 at the time so there's no oh, way oh, wow. there was no way that she could have done it okay. so what i what i feel that she did she was she was even then she was she wasn't telling the exact truth I believe that they had someone hidden in the room, okay. and what I was another one a good thing that I was able to do was the house that and it still stands this house in in Cadogan Square in Kensington, uh, very very expensive property. It's been changed a lot inside. It's been completely remodelled inside, but outside it looks exactly the same. There were, were drawings that were up on the internet from the planning authority um, uh, when the house was converted, when the house was refurbished. Okay. And I managed to get the drawings of the of the of the of the rooms, the plans of the room. And this is another thing where Price gives a rough size of the room in his account of the of the room, and if you put take his dimensions and overlay them on the actual plan of the house, it fits like a glove. So the okay. actual room, that's another thing. But right. there was a I noticed that in the corner of one room there was a little cupboard that that was in the corner of one room. Oh. And I think that possibly, even though Price. I think Price just happened to have missed it. I think maybe the room was panelled, but I think they had somebody in that. I think they had somebody in that in that in that in that cupboard uh, okay. who, who played Rosalie. Now I don't think that they had a real child come out and do it. I think that was probably too risky. Now this is this is very, this is conjecture on my part, but it is sort of backed up with 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 evidence. The the the, the people who lived at the house. Uh, the Mortimers who lived at the house, they had a son called Roger Mortimer, uh, who wasn't involved. He was in the army when the seances were taking place. He was in North Africa, um, but he later went on to become uh, the racing correspondent for the Sunday Times newspaper over here. And um, recently, within the past five or six years, his children have published um, uh, collections of their letters to to from him to them and okay. in it he mentions, he mentions his father he mentions the mortimers and in one of them he describes uh, the the sort of servants they had and he he describes them having a dwarf maid 
who, oh. who was, I mean, they called her Minnie, but, but I mean, it wasn't a real name. But they said they had a dwarf, a dwarf servant, a maid. Um, and so I thought, well, it's conceivable that yes. they, they could have got her to play the ghost of Rosalie. And in the dark, in the heightened atmosphere of the seance room. Of course. They could have, you know, they could have. That you, is incredible. That's the only thing that's slightly, that's slightly. That, yeah, you, know, you could think, okay, who who did they use for? Who did they use for it? But, it, I mean, that is a possibility, you know. And in those days, servants were treated a lot different. You know, they were servants, weren't they? You know, and it was like, you do this sort of thing or you're out on right, your ears. exactly. <laughs> you know, so that was one of the one of the things. And another coincidence of the case is that um, when Harry Price's book, The 50 Years of Cycle Research, when that was published in 1939, it was reviewed uh, by a magazine called John of London's Weekly. And in it, the reviewer, uh, Clifford Back, for some reason, remember, I found the house was in Kensington. Uh-huh. He actually describes the, the, describes the review. He calls it the Kensington Ghost Girl. And I thought, how on earth did he, did he know that? Did he know it? Is it a coincidence? You know, uh-huh. there is a possible, I think it's one of those odd coincidences because Harry Price funnily enough had two of his laboratories where he had his offices where he did his science investigation stuff were actually in kensington okay. so so i think that Bax in his review had got slightly mixed up and had, knew that price was from kensington thought uh-huh. that maybe the seance had taken place in kensington at the, his laboratory so it was one of these odd right odd, it was just coincidental odd, because of where his laboratories were at yeah wow. so that was, an interest, that was an interesting an interesting thing so what i think happened i think that the the, the sort of uh, the tale of the tape is that when cohen's book came out in 1965 offering the reward for information he actually put a little bit at the bottom of one of the pages and said mentioning this review by clifford Bax, kensington ghost girl and says in a little footnote it wouldn't surprise me to know that the, to find out that the seance was in kensington so i think when when the lady the real joan mortimer exactly somehow she came across this book and thought my goodness me they're on to me uh-huh um, she's like what <laughs> <laughs> and at that time, her mother was still alive. Her father had okay. passed away, but her mother was still alive. So I think, again, to protect the family mm-hmm. honor sort of thing, she wrote trying to to sort of push them away by saying, look, it was a fake. I did it, but I'm not going to tell you anymore. And she introduced some um, sort of uh, red herrings, if you like, like the idea of her taking her clothes off in the seance and that sort of thing. Right. Um, you know, so, um, so yeah, so it was a, it was a sort of a, a strange mystery. The only thing that I haven't been able to find out is the identity of Rosalie herself and her mother. Okay. Madam Zed and Rosalie. Um, for a, some time, I had a, a, a real strong front runner uh, a lady by the name of Jane O'Malley Keys, who was known to the family, and she seemed to sort of tick a lot of the boxes uh, in that she was associated with France, um, and there were and she was uh, there was a connection with the family, but unfortunately, although she had five children, none of them died in childhood. So i not so, so so unless she had a, a child that did die, and it was covered up or it was a you know right a, it was just never 
never recorded so i you know so that's the only thing that that is still outstanding and uh, maybe one day somebody either i might be able to make another inroad into it or somebody else might come along and there might be some information you know um but uh, yeah so but at the end of the day you know the case has been sort of that is solved, such but, an um, interesting case because <laughs> and i see now what you meant that it spans 80 years in the sense of even back then and then <laughs> but i could see where what you said that the daughter at some point probably was thinking oh the next thing i know i'm gonna have somebody knocking on my door ghost hunters knocking on her door you and know, she so says if i like you said if i make it the the, the ghost <laughs> interest will disappear and they'll forget about it. That's right. That's right. I mean, these people were very well connected. I mean, they had friends who were uh, friends with royalty, and they and they and they all moved in all these sort of big high circles. You know, I mean, they would have been very, very embarrassed if that would. <laughs> yeah, you know. So that's why they did it. So obviously, but now the sort of cat's out of the bag, so to speak. But well, uh, but and it, or uh, or like you said, let's say they did use a servant. Okay, maybe also she was thinking the last thing I need is for this person, if they were still alive, maybe. Yeah. To, you know, for somebody to investigate it further. I could see where she said, I have to stop this quick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because the book came out in, nine, in about the middle of 1965, and the letter, letter was written about six months later. So she'd obviously yeah. come across a copy of it. It's, it. How she did is a bit of a mystery, because the book was actually um, self-published. It wasn't published by a major publisher. Oh. It was published by Regency Press, who were what they used to call a vanity publisher over here, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, and because, it, because it, people knew, reviewers knew that it was that sort of book, uh, it didn't tend to didn't tend to get reviewed very well. So right. uh, the the book was quite an obscure title. So, but somehow she managed to see it or see a copy of it, and and um, and the story, and it went from there. You know, but, uh, but and, you know. and 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 you stop and you think about it. You know, if you ever, as an adult, you realize your parents did something like that, those circumstances that they're like, oh, my God. <laughs> and, you, and think about it. Even though you don't live your life, you always have that hanging over your head. Yeah. What if this ever explodes? Yeah, the skeletons in the cup, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> It'll make us look like, forget it. You know, yeah. That all so, yeah, I could, but that is, that is so interesting. And like you said, back in those times, uh, it wasn't just a question of the medium, you know, let's say the spirit taking over the vocal cords, it was where they would actually materialize. That's right. Ectoplasm. Yes, yeah. Or in this case, yeah. when you said that he touched the body, I'd be like, oh my God. Yeah, I think if some ghost hunters that. nowadays actually touched the body, they'd like run screaming from the building. <laughs> 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 but yeah, the yeah, yeah, the uh, this was the whole thing of the of the of the you know the, the materialization. I mean, Price Price had met uh, one one. There were two mediums that he uh, did experiment with, did investigate in the twenties and in the thirties. One was uh, a lady called Stella Cranshaw, who was uh, an English nurse who uh, Price felt did produce genuine phenomena. She caused could, she could move objects uh, okay. and 
that sort of thing. And there was another medium called Rudy Schneider, the Schneider brothers, Willie and Rudy. Uh, Willie, Willie was a physical medium. Rudy was a more powerful medium. He came to London in the ni- early 1930s. Price had sittings with him. And he was convinced that, that Rudy had produced genuine phenomena, that uh, objects had moved in the seance room and that they had seen uh, partial materializations of arms and 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 faces, you know, uh-huh. uh, coming out of the the séance cabinet. So, Price was was convinced that you know materialization phenomena was possible. Um, you know, it was just, and I think that's why he was so initially uh, by by the appearance of Rosalie. You know, a séance, you know, a a, a, a séance that took under his own control you know under his own conditions of control right. you know? but like you said you know sometimes and we, i mean we'll never know he's probably the only one that does know but sometimes when you have investigators of all types they and they're they're well recognized sometimes they do overlook the obvious despite their experience like you said there might have been that cabinet or cupboard in the corner yeah. or hidden somehow yeah. that he just didn't see it for whatever reason, or they put it in such a way. And um, I think you know. I think what 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 went in their favour was that I think Price he actually was quite um, he initially wasn't going to go. He he it was only a, that uh, a colleague of his, a man called Richard Lambert, who worked on who was the editor of the the Listener magazine, uh, happened to have lunch with Harry Price the day that he received the phone call. Uh, Price sort of mentioned it to him. Uh, and he said, oh, it's, you know, it's, I'm not, it's not going to bother. It's just going to be, a, you know, it's going to be another fraud. And Lambert said, no, you've got to go along. You've got to, you've got to, you've got to go. So he persuaded him to go. And I think that Price, when he turned up there, um, he was expected some sort of uh, typical spiritualist seance, you know, a back parlor type thing, you know, singing hymns and that okay. sort of thing. You know? <laughs> it wasn't. When he get, went there, he, he suddenly arrived at this big affluent London townhouse and i mean i haven't been inside but i've been outside i've been right sorry and i think they had him at a disadvantage you thought what's going on here you know these people aren't the usual spiritualist types these are these look like really you know serious people you know not that i'm saying spiritualists aren't well and 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 i understand exactly what you mean when he got there he had this preconceived idea maybe based on his prior experience so when he gets there like you said He's seeing, he's going to, like you said, they have servants, uh, yeah. higher social status. So he's thinking, absolutely, these people would not risk yeah, uh, doing a fraud because it would make them look so bad. So, yeah, exactly. I could see. So I think I think he was at a disadvantage. And although he, he said he, he, he checked the room thoroughly, um, it, you know, it's, it's conceivable that, well, I believe he, he did overlook he did overlook this 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 one area and it just happened to be i mean they were very um they were very lucky that he didn't find it you know i mean i, I, I don't know where i don't know how familiar they were the reason that the price was brought in so the let so the anonymous letter says uh, was the fact that rosalie's mother had actually become suspicious herself oh my god that is that's that such was, she was a little unsure were going on, you see because you so know what said, i was oh, thinking that i was thinking well if they did this for this lady to buy time i think this, why would they want to bring in somebody yeah, that the, 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 was known <laughs> for busting mediums that yeah. makes perfect sense yeah, yeah. so as they, they to brought why they did that she asked i want somebody to come in to check on this and obviously harry price was the most the, the 
famous person. Oh, of course, so of course. She'd known about him, so I said, I want Harry Price to come. So that's the reason why oh he got God. the phone call, and it was the reason why after he'd sort of um, given yes. it the green light, you know, he that she was after Price. Well, he, he won. They, 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 she must have, like, that's it. He When he gave it his blessing, for lack of a better word, as far as. Yeah. Oh, that's incredible. That you know. is that's so, incredible. That's why it was only a one-off, one-off. That's why it was only a one-off seance, you see, and why they kept fobbing him off then afterwards about him wanting to go back, you see. Oh, no, it was like, okay, we, we used you. We got what we wanted from yeah. your visit. We really don't yeah. want you. The last thing we want is for you to come back in here. Exactly. And, and, and about six months, six months later, the Mr. Mortimer had received a legacy from a, a relative who passed away uh, and uh, received a, a large amount of money. I've got that. That's documented. So uh -huh. and then obviously a large amount of money comes in. He's able to pay off his debts. His wife miraculously loses her mediumship and the seances. seances oh, my God. And you know what? And maybe they were waiting for that money to come in along. That's why they needed just to buy time. It was I think they were. I think they were. They were biding time in order yes. to, to in order to get that to, to in order to bankroll the, get the money. Yeah, you know? it's like we could just buy us a few more months until this money comes in, and then that's it. And yeah. oh, like you said, incredibly, I can't communicate with the spirits anymore. <laughs> and Ms. X, why, why don't you go off to France and uh, join the resistance? Bye. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, so what? Yeah, so yeah, it's one of those, one of those strange, those strange stories, you know. Which um, that which, uh, is, but that is such an intriguing and oh my god, and it's real. <laughs> it's real. Yeah, it's a real. Every word of it is true, you know. You know, it's a uh, uh, yeah. I mean, Harry Price was this, 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 you know, this remarkable character. Really, he's still very influential today. You know, he still inspires people. I mean, he was a, he was um. He wasn't as pure as a driven snow, you know. He was. A, he was. A, he was. A, I think that he did, uh, on occasion. I mean, I'm, some people don't agree with me on this, but I, I do think that on occasion he did um, fake things, for want of a better word. At Borley Rectory. I think he may have egged on some of the some of the things uh, in some way. But I think that was just his own personality. He wanted right. to. He was a complicated man. He he was passionate about the subject, passionate about psycho research. He he'd found the subject in his in his early forties, and he and he and he became very very enthralled by it. But he wanted to do it under his own terms, and he wanted to yes. be the big man ahead. And if you if you sort of crossed him, he he came down you on on you like a ton of bricks, you know. So he was a, a difficult man, um, and. Uh, a frustrating man in some ways and but at the same time i think he when he did you know experience genuine things he championed it you know and i think that the rosalie case having sort of not redeemed him but you know mm -hmm. you know in, in the 50s he was it was you know he it was complete his, his reputation was at the absolute bottom you know right and so so it's nice to think that he did he did. Um, he did have this experience, but um, you know, it was sort of. Um, he was a victim of his own of himself, really. Yeah. Well, I think that when you're in, let's say, researching, debunking it, you're never going to have to worry about your reputation suffering for it. Mm. Let's face it, because if yeah. you're always finding all these people that are fraudulent, nobody's ever going to come behind you. And go, no, that's not true. Yeah. The problem when you deal with the supernatural, which is not an on-demand thing, is that 
let's say in, let's say you do find a moment or an instance where it's genuine or somebody that's genuine you can't always bank on how easily you're going to be able to reproduce that as far as once you have that taste of fame mm. you understand what i'm saying yeah, to definitely. and that's i think where a lot of and and one of the things paul that i've talked about is that sometimes people get this idea and i'm not going to say so much as researchers as in psychics or mediums that somehow or other these people and i'm not talking about the fraudulence or I'm talking about mm. that they're like more enlightened or good people and i said you could have all, be very very psychic mm. whether it's a is a medium or as a psychic uh sensitive however you get it and i say you could be a jerk <laughs> you could be an unlikable person and still have these abilities um mm. And unfortunately, sometimes we're always hoping that somebody that is able to connect with the spirit world is nice or uh, mm. wouldn't wouldn't put, pull one over on somebody else. And I think that, you know, during those years, like Houdini and all these people that were out there debunking mediums, mm. I think that there were some that were genuine, but they, they just could not, you can't produce that over and over again. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the on whole a thing is mixed, mixed, mixed mediumship, isn't it? You know, the fact right. that right, and they, sometimes it would fall back on maybe yeah. doing stuff that wasn't genuine, just because yeah. now they were a victim of their own fame. Was, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think that's that's very true. I mean, there's mediums over here. Um, I mean, Helen Duncan is a famous medium. Uh, she was famously um, uh, went to, on trial in 1944 in the witchcraft trial over here in, uh, uh, and was sentenced to nine months in prison, you know. Wow. Um, and she's one of the one, another man called Jack Weber. Um, I think that they were, I think they did have some sort of genuine ability, but they were under incredible pressure yes. to to pr produce every, every time, you know. And so I think right. that they did have to fall back on you know, on, on fakery now and again, you know, to, well, to keep and it. And some of them at some point, I mean, they were making a living from it where they would have these seances and the more popular you became, uh, you had more famous people coming to witness it. Mm -hmm. So talk about pressure to produce. Yeah. And I think that genuine mediums sometimes got exposed supposedly, but it's not that they were totally fake. I think it's just that they they knew it, and it's it's you know it's exhausting work as far as if you're actually uh, doing that work. So, but yeah, I, I think that around that time, um, and then you have the ones that I say these are the also the genuine mediums that know better, just kept quiet because mm. they didn't want to get somebody to go in there and try to prove that they were fake. So mm. they just yeah, kept a very low profile. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's the way it is today. I think you know, exposing I think of, themselves to that type of criticism. Yeah, yeah. I think a lot of a lot of mediumship, certainly in this country, um, a lot of physical mediums. I mean, there there is a, was a sort of resurgence of it in the 1990s, but I think a lot of it has gone underground. You know, I think you mm -hmm. know there's this, there is a sort of a a feeling that uh, amongst uh, you know spiritualists that um, they don't have anything to prove anymore to the to the to the to the cycle researchers. So it's gone. You know, it's gone underground. So I think there are things. You know, that uh, well, and it's also. I hate to say it, but it's become so sensationalized. Yeah. <laughs> Something like, yeah. you know, fireworks. It's people now, um, they they want to see something more evident, more dramatic, more whatever. Mm. And 
it's the spirit world kind of doesn't work exactly that way. Sometimes it can be very subtle, mm. um, and hard to describe. And nowadays, as you know, most they've got all these equipments and all these things to capture evidence. And uh, uh, let me ask you: when you've been doing all these different books in the paranormal, and it sounds like you absolutely do the legwork on your research and on have you ever had anything happening to you at home when you're working on a certain book um no i can't say as i, I can't say as i have no I, I i don't um i don't think i've ever sort of uh, created anything or nothing nothing happened like that no i mean i've got the i've got the original courtyard bell from borley rectory hanging on the back of my house how did you get that to- uh, that came. That, that was a gift uh, from Peter Underwood. He 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 passed that on to me. So, uh, and this is the big. I mean, it's a big bell. It's a big thing, and that's supposed to have rung by itself, uh, you know, on several occasions at Borley Rectory. But it, it hasn't done in my house. So. <laughs> but uh, but uh, but no, I don't know. I can't say as I've 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 had any um, anything's happened to me in okay. that in, in that respect. You know, I mean, I have I have. Um, I was a member of a of a, a home circle for a couple of years. Um, uh, about when did I start that? That was about two thousand seven, and uh, with a small group of people, just you know, sitting sitting once a week, you know, trying to develop phenomena. And we had some interesting things there. The medium used to go into trance and you know, and 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 speak in an altered state, you know, with different personalities, you know. And um, there were some interesting um, physical effects in the room as well. Of, you know, the room temperature would drop. Okay. And uh, there was breezes in the room, and uh, I'm convinced that nobody in nobody in the room was faking it. And there were knocks as well, knocks underneath my chair and things like that. So that was that was quite interesting, you know. Um, but uh, but no, I've not had anything happen to me while I've been working on a book. Thankfully. <laughs> Let me ask you: Have you? What has been? What experience have you ever had? Whether you were looking for it, when I say looking for it, being in a paranormal setting or not looking for it, but sometimes that does happen. Well, I had a very odd, I had one odd thing happen to me. Um, and I tell the story, I've told the story a lot. And it, I don't know whether people believe me or not, I don't know, but every word of this is true. I think it's one of those things, I think it may be a huge coincidence thing, but I'll tell you the story. Yes. This, this goes back to when I was at school. Uh, and I was probably aged about 15 when this took place. And we used to mess around with a Ouija board, you know, at lunch times, you know, as people do, you know, now and again. And we had this thing going in a, in a, little, in a little room in off, the, off of one of the art rooms. And we were supposedly, you know, it was the typical, you know, glass with the circle of letters, that sort of thing, you know. And we were supposedly in touch with a with a uh, an aircraft pilot uh, who was shot down over North Africa in his Spitfire in the war, you know. Okay. And uh, and he gave a gave a name, um, which subsequently I've researched, and the name is. It, there was nobody of that name and under that thing, but this this this. Uh, uh, this, we were supposedly in touch with this communicator and after it had finished the bell went and uh, we picked up and um, and we went off and we had a game lesson we had a rugby lesson on the school playing field so we go out and I hated rugby uh, so I sort of tried to keep away from all the where the action was you know so I'm standing around doing nothing uh, and there's another lad uh, called Robert Turner 
his name was, and he was standing about 100 yards away from me. Uh, and I was standing there, and all of a sudden I heard this aeroplane noise, aeroplane engine noise, and I looked up, and a Spitfire plane flew over the, over the, the, the pitch, over the football pitch, uh, rugby pitch, and, oh it, and it passed. It didn't disappear, but it went out of sight behind some flats on the outside of a railway line. And I stood there and I thought, I don't believe I've seen that. That's just stupid. And then I looked across and Robert Turner says, did you see that? And I said, yeah. And he was like well into the war, you know, even like all the army stuff and air force and stuff. He said it was a Spitfire plane. And I said, yeah. Uh, and at that time, there were only seven Spitfires serviceable. I was Spitfires about to say, flying. what were the chances? <laughs> there were seven Spitfires serviceable, one of which was bright red because I'd seen it at an air display a year or so before. So, yeah, that was one of these. I mean, I, I tell the story for what it is. Every word of it is true. Whether, what, whether that was something, I don't know, a coincidence or whatever, but it, 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 it happened. Uh, and it was, a, it was an, odd, an odd thing, you know, and it's never That's happened to me again. You know. Um, some, some of the, those are the, the best experiences. Unexpected. You're not, you weren't looking for it's like I know it's spontaneous things, isn't it? I think I think that they are the some of the things that happen spontaneously to people are the yes. Um, you know, I'm a bit skeptical. I, I'm not putting people down who, who do investigations and things like this. I think they there's a lot of genuine people who are really really committed to getting evidence and stuff. But I, I find that sometimes the, the things that happen when you least expect them, people yes. describe some of these cases that are things happening to them, you know, uh, I think they are some of the most convincing, uh, convincing, um, things, you know, um, but it certainly happened to a you know, friends of mine. I'm a very good friend of mine had an experience, um, when he was a, when he was a boy, when he was about 10 years old in a house in, uh, Camberwell in South London, uh, where there were, and there was a, Funny family there. They, they were a family, and they nobody ever talked to any other about it. So people were experiencing things, but they weren't. Nobody was telling each other, you know. And there yes. was foot, footsteps up and down the stairs. And my friend was sitting in the in the kitchen, uh, coming home from school, and um, uh, heard footsteps coming down the stairs. Walk along a passage towards the kitchen where he was sit where he was sitting at table, and literally like something out of a film, the door creaked open, and there was nobody there, and he just hightailed it out he, I he, bet. <laughs> I bet. he was out there sitting in the garden and his, his grandmother came home uh, and she said what are you doing sitting out here and he said oh i'm just sitting out here you know and they looked at each other and she realized that he realized that she knew what that something uh -huh. was going on and she realized that he'd seen something so they were you know exactly. uh, these spontaneous things you know which i think are really really interesting you know and keep us keep us enthralled in this subject. I know. Yeah, I've heard of that, especially when it's several kids and everybody grows up and they move away, and then one day the conversation comes up, and then everybody talks about their experiences. Like that happened to you too, yeah. And, yeah. and the parents don't say anything because they want to protect the children, and yeah, yeah. But they only yeah, come about like sometimes ten or twenty years later that everybody actually confesses to their experiences. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were all they were all hearing things. People were his father would uh, would would hear would. It seemed like somebody was getting up and walking up and down the stairs in the house. It was a big old house, uh, uh -huh. an old uh, Georgian place, you know, really old, but actually used as a local authority house. It was, a, you know, it was a council owned by the local council. But um, yeah, and, and he would go out, and all of the kids were all asleep in bed, you know, and and people were hearing things like that, you know. So uh, yeah, it was a, a strange thing. So, so uh, but I've never had anything like that happen to me. I'm afraid. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, I've had. I had experiences that when they were occurring, I didn't think they were. Then later on, when I thought about it, as a matter of fact, when I got older, 
I said, you know what? That was that was that. Yeah. Um, but when you're a teenager, sometimes you are thinking about everything but supernatural or paranormal or anything like that. You, you know, you're you know you're wanting to talk to your boyfriend or your girlfriend or your friends or you know you're caught up in different things. Mm. Um, let me ask something, Paul. That the book now, the fiction one, the architecture of evil. Is, oh yeah, that, that's on the back burner. That one is. <laughs> it is okay, and I know yeah. sometimes fiction I is find, more difficult I, in the sense to write. You're telling me. I find. Uh, I mean, I've always. I've, I've wanted to be. Uh, I've always been interested in writing from since about the age of about eleven, yes. uh, when. Um, Funny, a couple of coincidences in my life. I've, I've two, uh, two people who were very influential um, to me in terms of writing, uh, Peter Underwood and, another, and a British horror writer called Guy Smith. And funny enough, in, in later life, they've now become they were very good friends of mine. You know, I've become I've mm-hmm. sort of got to know them, and um, and uh, yeah, the sort of horror, the sort of fiction. I've always wanted to write fiction, but I find it so difficult. I find it a real um, Whereas nonfiction, I can, I find, you know, you, you, you research, you bring facts together and exactly. you try and, and it's present, more like you know, a description of events or yeah. versus but dialogue. We, and, oh yeah. We actually create characters and make them real and make them interesting. I find it thing. So yeah, I mean, I've, I've, uh, hopefully I will get back on with that at some point, but, uh, but yeah, I'm doing, uh, I'm doing the, um, ho- sort of, I've got loads of irons in the fire as usual. You know, I'm doing a biography of Peter Underwood. Uh, I'm interested in doing a, a book on, um, I love the mediums. I love the Victorian mediums. So I've got on mm-hmm. Florence Book, who was a, a famous Victorian medium from the 1870s over here. She was famously investigated by William Crookes, uh, the, the scientist. So I'm, I'm interested in doing a biography of her. So uh, that's one other one of those one of those uh, books as well, you know. And what is that about the Western music? What? Oh yes, that was. Oh uh, my God, what is that? That sounds so interesting. <laughs> well, I'm just interested in in. I mean, I love music. Uh, um, I wish I could play better than I than I do, um, but uh, I. I, I just wanted to sort of do a collection. I did a, I did a thing, a book um, called Written in Blood, which was about vampires in British culture. That came out about three years ago. Uh, and that was all like films, stories, supposedly real life uh, you know, encounters and things like that. And I wanted to do a similar thing with music as well, because I love music. I love some of the um, uh, some of the classical music. Though you've got like um, Benjamin Britten's opera, Turn of the Screw and things like that. And, uh, where, and then you've got... Stories of supposedly where uh, uh, composers' ghosts have been seen, you know, uh, uh-huh. and, things, and houses where ghostly music is heard. So really, it was to try and bring together all my interest in music, you know, real life cases, you know, and bring it all in one book. That so sounds so so interesting. And also, what you mentioned before about Victorian times, and I mean, even though the um, and it's it, like I said, when when you read some of these stories. Um, even though they're supposed to be fiction, some of them, when you read them, they sound real. They sound like mm. it did occur to them. Yeah, yeah. Like in, act, yeah. In, in other words, the author really did have the story retold to them, mm. and mm. they just made it sound, I guess, like you said, to maintain the privacy and the confidentiality of whoever it was that told them the story, especially if you didn't want to be thought of as 
having those types of experiences. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but yeah, I find the whole the whole Victorian yeah, the whole Victorian era. It's just you know the gaslight and the and these the idea yes. of these seances taking place. You know, so well, uh, it was you know, a- and even now when you go visit a cemetery, because I've been to some cemeteries, and you know exactly which is which is the oldest part, because mm. this is when the Victorians they were into their <laughs> their monuments in the cemeteries. Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah, I mean, it's like. <laughs> All the symbology and the, yeah. the the mausoleums. It's like, and then you look over, and what's really plain—that's the modern ones. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, we've got some fantastic. There's some fantastic cemeteries around London. The Highgate Cemetery is the yes. famous one in in uh, because I, I there was there was an alleged vampire case there in the 1970s, which I wrote about in uh, in my vampire book. But that's an amazing, such an amazing place to go, and you can have a guided tour around it. And it's all, you know, the, as you say, the symbolism on all the the tombs and and uh, fantastic, absolutely. Right, and, and it's like, and they they took this seriously, in other words, and uh, you know, of course, the you know the photography of the dead people and the dead children, and yeah, it's kind of morbid when you look at it from our point of view versus where they looked at it from. But mm-hmm. it's very very interesting the how much thought they put into the afterlife or what happened to you after yeah. you died. Hey. And yeah. then, of course, even before the Victorians, and you know, we get into the resurrectionist and grave robbing, and God, yeah. so many things happen nowadays. A lot of people get cremated, and that's it. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing comes of it. It's 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 become very. Um, how can I say? It, there, I want to say even, and, and sometimes I even um, because I've done some. Uh, I've looked into what I call unofficial graveyards, which is where you would bury criminals. People that were on the fringes of society, uh, okay. whether it was actually legally, uh, you know, and as in an outlaw or whether your lifestyle was, mm. you know. And I said back then people, the decent or the good people did not want this person to be buried in the same place that they were. I mean, in other right. words, after you were dead, this this still had this division yeah. of um, – um, they, they, there was there should be no association. I say, every time I've gone to some of these cemeteries, the paupers' graves are always in a corner, way in the back. Okay, yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, and th- you were lucky if you got in there. Um, mm. And uh, you know, I've I said I've, I've you know nowadays a lot of times they'll even find them when if they're digging up for a road, well they used to find these graveyards and some of them are old ones, but some of them they're what they call unofficial ones right. because they had okay. to bury you somewhere. Okay, mm. and back then there was a stigma. I say, well, you know what? That's another thing of uh, that sometimes you think of as hauntings. Besides the obvious that it's a forgotten graveyard, is back then you people did want to get buried in consecrated ground. This there was this belief of I want somebody to pray over me and I want to be buried the right way, even if you might have lived a dissolute life. Mm. You were brought up. Your your mindset as a child was that what happened to your body or where you were buried did affect you mm-hmm. in the afterlife. So, yeah, yeah it's it, things have changed considerably since those times. But anyway, Paul, thank you so much for Pleasure. the time you thank spent you. here. Thank it's you. been wonderful. I'm going to put a link to your website on the credits of the show. And I hope you'll come back in the future to discuss your thank other you works because you – let me tell you something. I am – that that story that you said – 
that you talked about, that was hats off to you for your mm. effort as a detective because basically that's what it took, detective work. <laughs> yeah, it was. It to is run a it to ground. I find, and, I, find, I find the history of the paranormal, you know, the, the, the yes. very interesting, you know, the, all these things that have gone on, you know, in the past. So it is, a, it is like a detective story. So, yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and, uh, and, and like you said, maybe not till now because of the resources that you're able to get to is that actually it could be kind of narrowed down to what you found. Yeah. And then the, yeah. the comparison of the handwriting, that's incredible. But anyway, <laughs> thank you so, so much. I have Pleasure. enjoyed this tremendously, and I wish you the best of luck in all your future work. Thank you very much. Very nice to just spoken with you. Thank you. Bye-bye, Paul. Bye now. I don't know about you guys, but <laughs> that was so engrossing um, as far as what he's describing. I mean, and, and this is what I like, you know, obviously he, he understands, let's say Harry Price, you know, he kind of describes him where he has his admirable points, but he still sees where he has his fallacies as a human being with an ego and things like that. And what I like is that he took this to where it led, which was that, yes, that they had faked this. And of all the reasons, money, of course. Uh, and these people also, because of their social status, they had this reputation that they had to maintain. And I'm sure that this would have stained the family's reputation, especially back then, if any of this came out. Uh, can you imagine? And like he said, they were they were connected. But, and it's also kind of sad when you think about that they kind of um, took advantage of somebody that was suffering over the loss of a child, which makes a person very vulnerable. But then at the same time, this lady at some point was snapping out of it. And... Along came Harry Price and rescued the day. And that thing about the, the servant being a dwarf, I, I swear, I was like, you should write a book. Well, he did write a book about it, but it was like, they should make a movie out of this because this is incredible. Think about it. Think about it. Even if you leave it open-ended, okay, because, you know, at the end, as much as they narrow it down, there's no absolutes, even though that handwriting comparison, that's 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 pretty uh, that's pretty good proof. Still, it's like all these things that have taken place, like he said, throughout 80 years. That is, I'm telling you, that would make a good movie. That would make a great movie. Uh, and, um, yeah, it's it's one of those things where, and, and I've said this before, the supernatural is not an on-demand thing. And when you have um, somebody, whether it's a paranormal investigator or a medium, or anything like that, which is banking, what I mean banking as in, they're making money off of this, whether it's for ratings, for popularity, for money, or just to get paid. I want to say that it's inevitable that things are produced falsely, because the spirit world just does not work like that. It doesn't. It doesn't. I'm telling you, I've, I've been doing this since the 1990s. And even before that, like I said, I've read everything I could lay my hands on since I was a kid. 
and um, it just doesn't work that way. You can't, it's not like a dog that you teach it tricks and it does it on command. So whenever you get into that position where you need for something to happen, I'm telling you right now, I guarantee you that somebody at some point is either producing something totally or maybe something subtle because this is the thing what people don't understand if if you know and I'm not talking here and if you if you got genuine spirit um, communication in whatever form doesn't always have to be through a medium sometimes the most they can produce for you is something very subtle that maybe only you or the person's interested would understand or would notice and sometimes it takes quite an effort uh, which sometimes doesn't isn't even captured on a camera or and I'm gonna give you a perfect example let's say all of a sudden you smell a certain perfume and you know let's say your grandmother's perfume or your aunt cousin whoever whoever your dad's cologne well or a certain smell in the house how do you quantify a smell how do you capture a smell besides the person saying I smelled it or that you yourself the person understand goes oh my god that's my grandma's you know gardenia perfume that she always wore okay and sometimes it's as subtle as that and that's the best they can do for you especially if you're trying to communicate with them or or they're coming by to say hello and just make sure you're okay which is um, another point that I make that uh, most human souls or entities, spirits, whatever you want to call them, once you've passed on and you're enlightened, when I say enlightened, you want to have as little to do with the earth plane as possible. Okay, your ego is gone. You're, you're, you, you know, you understand where you're at. You don't need a human body or any of the things that come with people that are alive and that live on the earth plane, as in food, shelter, clothing. Your ego runs the, the show, you know, that possessiveness, the need for all these things. You know, once you reach that, you, you don't want to hang out. This is not your place anymore. And you have this understanding that your loved ones that are left behind, even though you might come and visit them, you kind of know this is your moment now to work it out. You have this trust that things are unfolding as they should for them, whether it's through their, your family or free choice or whatever they might, might be, just like you did or they did when they were alive. In other words, you don't want to hang out here. And whenever you have uh, the, the spirits that a lot of times that, that, um, that you see too much of or hear too much of, if it's true, if it's not produced, then you're talking uh, a, a human spirit that is in a place it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be. Uh, that's why I think, it, um, especially in, in those cases where people are trying always to contact the soul of a child, which I imagine has got to be one of the most heartbreaking events that could happen to uh, another human being. Uh, there's a point where you want them to be on their way and not tied to 
your emotions, your suffering, all the things that happen to you or your family. And just know that eventually you'll be together and that you'll not want to hang out here anyway either. Um, but yeah, I, I think that, like I said, I, I'm not surprised when at the end, Paul, the finale was that it looks like, yes, that this was fraud, whether he overlooked it because he wanted to overlook it because the possible fame attached to it uh, or he was genuinely deceived because they kind of like planned this out real well. Plus, they had a lot riding on. Who knows? I'm not surprised. That's what happens. That's why, unfortunately, uh, a lot of work in the paranormal field gets a bad rap. And some of it is deserved, but a lot of it is not. So, guys, thank you so much for listening and for viewing. Uh, please catch me on Facebook and on Twitter. I live stream there. Catch the podcast or the show on uh, Spreaker, iHeartRadio, uh, iTunes. Uh, I always post also on uh, Tumblr uh, links to the shows. Uh, so, of course, please uh, thank you so much for viewing and listening. And I also, like I said, I do a live stream on um, mostly on uh, on Periscope for Twitter and on Facebook. And also, again, to my true believers, please don't forget me, Marlene at MiamiGhostChronicles.com. Send me an email, a uh, video of yourself, taping yourself, and tell me your true ghost encounters or that weird light that you saw in the sky or uh, if you live out somewhere in the boonies, you know, you think Bigfoot is camping out in your backyard. I don't care. I would love to hear from you guys. Please send it to me and I'll include it in the show. If you have a set of stories, I can get together and contact you. Maybe I could uh, either interview you on the phone or through Skype like I did with Paul and some of my other guests. Either way, uh, please uh, don't forget to uh, send me those stories. And again, thank you so very, very much for being part of my audience. Take care.